Our scripture reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 6 to 12, 19 to 46. Let us prepare to hear God's words by praying together the words from Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Hear the word of God from Deuteronomy 1. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negeb and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of the heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Then we set out from Horeb and we went and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us, and bring us word again by the way of which we must go, and the cities to which, into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up to the hill country, came to the valley of Eshcol, and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land, and brought it down to us, and brought us word again, and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt, to give us into the hand of the Amorites and to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek out a place to pitch your tents, 
in fire by night and cloud by day to show you by the to show you what way you should go and the Lord heard your words and was angered and he swore not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give your fathers except Caleb the son of Jephunneh he shall see it and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden because he has wholly followed the Lord even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you, sh you also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord of our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in the Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our great God, we thank you for this, your word, that you are a God who speaks and are not silent. And we pray now that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to hear your word and see what you are saying to us in this text and that you would lead us to yourself and to the glories of the person of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. So this is our second week in the book of Deuteronomy, our study of Deuteronomy, a, a book that if it's known by people at all, Probably you think about uh, rules or laws or commands. Uh, the title in our English Bible, Deuteronomy, translates to something like second law. What's significant about how Deuteronomy be begins is that it begins with a story. In fact, the first three chapters of Deuteronomy is a story. And that is incredibly significant for how we understand what this book is trying to do, as well as how it is to connect to our lives and our stories. So if you've been around the last few weeks, you are aware that there has been a bit of a pastor feud going up here on the stage. Jeff and I have been taking slight digs at each other for the shows that each of us enjoy, and I hope to end this today. Uh, the Bigger Man, and, and talk about a show that we both really love uh, called Severance on Apple Plus, which is a fantastic show. So the show's main character, he's played by Adam Scott. 
if you know Parks and Rec, you're familiar with his character, Ben. So Adam Scott, he works for this company called Lumen Industries, and he works on their severed floor. Scott and his colleagues who work on this floor have gone through a medical procedure that separates their work memories from their non-work memories. Uh, this little device that's been installed in their brain functionally turns them into two persons. The innie, who is the person who comes to consciousness and is at work, and then the outie, who lives the rest of their life normally, you know. And so what happens basically is, right, like the Audi, you can imagine like the Audi comes into work and they push the button in the elevator and then when they get to, when they go down to their floor, it's like a switch is turned and the innie all of a sudden comes to consciousness. So if you're the Audi, when you go to work, it's like you go to work, you hit the button, you go to your, you're out, you wake up, work's over, you go home. That sounds maybe pretty good for some of you. It's like, I have no memory of what I did. It's like I was in and out. It was gone. But for the any, the enti their entire life is just one life of work. You don't have any experience of anything else. You have no memories. You have no history. You don't know your parents. You don't know your story. You don't know if you're married or not. You don't know if you have kids. You don't know what your life is like on the outside. It's just this life of nothing but work. And when one of the new characters uh, is struggling with this purposeless life, one of her colleagues, Irvin, suggests that they have to go to the perpetuity wing. And of all the places in this building of their company, everything else is kind of like bland 1960s kind of feel. The perpetuity wing is this space of transcendence. It's, it's big, it's massive, it's, it feels important, it feels sacred, it's like a temple. And in the perpetuity wing, you, you learn about the company you work for. So there's these various statues of all of like the founder and then all of the major CEOs throughout time. And what it is doing is it is narrating a story for you. It is telling you, this is your story. This is why you can find meaning in your work, because you work for this company. There's this really weird room where there's a, like pictures of people's smiles, all these smiling faces, and you're meant to understand, these are the people that I make happy by doing my work. The, the show is fantastic, but the creators and the writers are saying something very significant about people, and it is that people need a story. If you don't have a story, you don't know who you are. You don't know the meaning of your life. You, you can't make sense of what you go through every day. We need a story. And this is not really something that new. It's something that various you know, writers and thoughtful people have said. So the, the Catholic philosopher Alistair McIntyre put it like this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories is my life apart? And the book of Deuteronomy begins by telling us a story, telling us the true story, that we might see ourselves in this story, that we might see God in this story, and that therefore we would know how to respond to God and to the book of Deuteronomy. So I want us to look at Deuteronomy 1 this morning and ask two questions. One, what is this story about? What is the story of Deuteronomy 1 about? And then second, how are we meant to respond 
to that story. So first, what, what is the story? It is a story of a gracious God, and it is a story of human failure and rebellion. It's a story of God's grace. It's a story of a God who speaks, which that may not, you know, shock us, but it really should. All over this text, and it is a very significant theme in the book of Deuteronomy, is that God is a God who speaks. You see it in the first verse of our text printed, verse 6, Yahweh, God's personal name that's translated all in capital letters, Lord. Every time you see Lord in all capital letters throughout this passage, it's God's personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh our God said. And if you think about this chapter that we just read, this, I mean, a lot of text, almost everything in this passage is filled with either references of God speaking, of what God is saying now, of what God said in the past, of what people are doing with what God has said. Yahweh is a God who speaks, and that is a gift. You know, a couple weeks ago, I don't know if you were with us, but um, Jeff was doing the call to worship, and he, he kind of made a, a, a little throwaway comment about something he experienced in a, in a class at Wheaton, and I was thinking, I remember that, because I think I was in that class, and we talked about it this week, and we were in the same class. Not at the same time, Jeff's much older than I am, but, you know, we were, uh, we were in the same class, and in this class, it was an Old Testament class, and our professor had us just read a short little text, um, and it was, it was not a biblical text, but it was written around the time of the Old Testament and the Bible, and in this text, this person in the ancient Near East is just crying out for their God to show them something. He's saying, I'm in the dark, I don't know where to go, I don't know what to do, would you please talk to me, would you please speak, would you tell me something? Our God speaks. He speaks, you don't, you don't have to wonder, you don't, you don't have to guess, he speaks to us. And what he speaks is words of gift and grace. One of the most repeated words throughout this entire chapter, in Hebrew, it's this verb, Natan, from which we get our English name, Nathan, and it means he gave. Yahweh speaks words of grace, of his gift. We see this, for example, in verse 8, and we see this kind of dynamic of where the words of grace and gift point forward to what God is saying is before them right now, but it also points backward to his original promise of this gift centuries before. He says, verse 8, see, I have set the land before you, and set is actually translating that word Natan. Uh, see, my gift is before you. Go in and take possession of the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them and their offspring after them. Just a couple verses later, verse 10, recalls God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 that Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the stars. And we read, he's done it. He's multiplied. He's blessed them. And he will bless them just as he promised. If you keep going in the text, verse 20 speaks of the land that Yahweh our God is giving us. The gift is set before the people. 
the spies, right? They go into the land, they survey the land, and then what do they conclude at the, at the end? They say, yes, it's a good land that Yahweh is giving to us. Yahweh, he speaks words of grace. He, he speaks words of his gift, of what he has promised to give, and he's holding it out before the people. And because of this, Yahweh also speaks commands. Let me just back up a second. That, that may not sound like it follows immediately that Yahweh gives commands because of his gift. But if you think about it, his gift has to be received. It has to be embraced. It has to be entered into. And this is really an, a, a window into understanding the commands, the rules, the statutes, the laws in the book of Deuteronomy and in Scripture. Because they're not, they're not arbitrary, irrational, unconnected, just random things to do, nor are they even merely just things we're supposed to do because we're very thankful that God has redeemed us. Obeying the commands, doing the commands, living the commands are part of the gift. If you are going to take hold of the land, you have to go in. You, ha you have to listen and obey the command to receive the fullness of what God has given. And so you see throughout this story, again and again, repetition of things like turn and take your journey. Go in, go up and take possession. This gift has to be received. This is a story of God's grace, of a gracious God who gives. But it is also a story, as we were reading, I'm sure everywhere you see this, it is a story of human failure and rebellion. We get a hint of this very early on in the passage, verse 9. Moses says, I am not able to bear you by myself. And while I didn't include this, verses 13 through 18, they go on to explain that Moses delegates leadership to help out with this growing, numerous people. In verse 12, we see that the problem is not just that there's a lot of people, right? Moses says, how can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Or you could translate that, your quarreling. Moses is unable to bear the burden of this people, their hard hearts, the way that they turn from God, the way that they are quick to not trust God and trust themselves and grumble against God. Moses says, I can't bear the weight of you. And if you notice, this in initial hint of failure and rebellion, it happens like right in the context of God's grace. So just before verse 9, we hear God calling the people to go and receive this gift that he's giving them. And then in verse 10 and 11, between Moses saying, I can't bear you, it tells of God's faithfulness to his, to his promise. And so we see that this story that we're talking about, this story of human failure and rebellion, it plays out right in the midst of this story of God's grace. And this is something I just want to highlight a few other ways you can see it in the very vocabulary of the text. So, for example, there are numerous words in Hebrew that you see the author like playing off of what's going on here. So, for example, Moses can't carry the people. They're too heavy, verse 9 and 12. But verse 31, we read, God in the wilderness carried them. He carried them like a man carries his son. He's carried them right up to this place where they are. 
We've seen in Deuteronomy, we've already talked about this, right? How God is a God who gives and gives and gives and gives, and he just keeps giving. And how do the people respond? Verse 27, God hates us. He brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites. In the midst of this story of a God who gives, the people say, your purpose all along has been to give us over to death. God says, go up, go in, take possession. I'm giving it to you. I'm with you. And the people say, no, we can't. You mean to kill us. You hate us. God says, verse 40, that, okay, turn and journey into the wilderness. You can't enter this land. And the people say, no, no, now we'll go up. Now we'll go. And when God's, God said, I'm with you, go, they say, no. And when he says, I'm not with you, don't go, they say, we're going. As one writer put it, we see in this passage the relationship between Israel and Yahweh mapped on a geographical uh, canvas. Like you, like you see the movements of where the people are going and where they're not going, and you see the relationship that's going on here. God calls his people to follow him, to follow where he calls them, to trust him, to receive his gracious word of promise and command. And when the people listen, you, there's little hints of that, right? They are actually walking to the promised land. They spy it out. When they listen, everything is going well, but when they won't receive his word, everything goes horribly. And the Bible would say to each of us, look at your life honestly. Do you see evidence in yourself of these same tendencies? That God calls us to life with him, to knowing him, to trusting him, to following him. But what happens when it's scary? Or what happens when you can't see how what he's called you to makes sense? Or what happens when it feels like that is going to, like, I'm going to lose? Or that can't work? What do we do? Or, or God calls us to something and we realize that means I have to change everything about the way I've done my life. Think honestly about your life. Like, doesn't it map onto this story? What are we meant to do? In short, we're meant to respond like Psalm 119. Let me explain. This is one of the reasons why each week we are prayerfully reading um, and responsively reading together words from Psalm 119. Because if Deuteronomy, if God's word gets into us and it starts to like rearrange our hearts and our lives, we're going to have the kind of response that we see in Psalm 119. And what is that response? Let me highlight three things. It's deep praise, deep repentance, and deep longing. We are to respond with deep praise. God, you are good, and what you give us is good. What you say is good. What you command is beautiful. Your rules, your statutes, they are not burdens. They are not meant to kill your joy or constrain your life or ruin your freedom. They are your life and freedom. Your words give us light so we can see where we're going. They tell us who we are. They tell us what we're meant for. 
If you begin with that, if you respond with deep praise from the beginning, you begin with the assumption that is all over this text, which is that God is good and he is gracious and he means to give you good things. He is the God who gives himself Everything that he commands is good and for our flourishing. That, that's kind of like the baseline assumption. Deep repentance. The next, we respond with deep repentance. God, you know my impure thoughts. You know how quick my heart and my desires can be twisted and they can lead me astray. You know how quick I am to forget you, to not remember you, to live as if you're irrelevant or you can't help me to live in my own strength rather than in your strength. If you respond with this deep repentance, you assume what is all over this text and this story. And that is your heart and my heart are not right. And if you assume that, you will question the messages that you explicitly or implicitly hear every day in our world, which is stuff like this. You must follow your heart. You have to do what makes you happy. You have to be true to yourself. If you really want life and you really want to have happiness, you have to look inside. You have to figure out who you are. You have to figure out who you want to be. And then you live that out into the world. If this is your story, that is pure insanity. Last week, Jeff used this analogy, and I think we're going to keep kind of coming back to it in this series, an analogy of an addict, someone who's addicted to alcohol, who's addicted to substances, and to use that analogy as a way to think about our, our human problem, our, our problem and our struggle with sin. It's like our hearts are addicted to idols, and so we will trust in, take refuge in, find meaning and security and comfort in almost anything except Yahweh. And while, I, I don't know, you might think that is really pessimistic and negative, and <laughs> I, I don't like that. You know, any addict will tell you, if we are, if that is a good way to say, you know, who we are, any addict will tell you that is actually the first step toward recovery, is being able to own that. Like this, my problem goes deep. That is the first step toward actual healing and wholeness. We would respond with repentance. We would also respond with deep longing. And as, if you read Psalm 119 or you consider the words that we read this morning or that we'll read in future weeks, you see this all over the place. God, would you make my heart right? Would you cause me to keep your words and listen to you? Would you keep me from straying from you? Deuteronomy 1 anticipates what's going to happen in Israel's story. That this new generation that's, that's going to come into the land, they're going to enter the land, but they're not going to stay in the land. They're going to turn to idols. Just like, just like the generations past, they're not going to trust God. They're going to rebel. They're going to live out this same story. And it's like Deuteronomy and Psalm 119, and you could even say the whole Old Testament is meant to create this longing in us. Moses was a great leader, but even he couldn't lead the people in. He can't bear the weight of them. He dies in the book of Deuteronomy. That's how it ends. He dies outside the land of promise. It's not looking good. 
we're me- it's meant to point us forward and create a longing. And in that way, Deuteronomy leads us to the gospel. It leads us to Jesus, the better Moses who is able to actually take the burdens of the people, who's able to take our our failures, our rebellions, our sins upon himself. He's the one true Israelite who God says, go, and he goes. And even though like, you think about Israel, go into the land that I'm giving you. It's awesome. It's going to be fantastic. You're going to love it. Listen to me and go. Jesus, go and die. And he goes. Jesus, the one who in his resurrection and ascension now stands and intercedes for us, who is able to lead us into God's rest and the fullness of life with God. Which is why this morning, as as we are here, if you're someone here who, who believes in Jesus, you have more ability to actually do Deuteronomy than the Israelites did. Because in Jesus, being united to him, being empowered and animated by the Spirit, not because of what's in us, but because of Jesus who is united to us, we can now walk in his commands. But our ability to do this is going to be through him. So the first question is, have you come to him? And then the second question is, are you abiding in him? This text, I think, is a great picture of what abiding looks like, because abiding is this dynamic thing, right? It, it's kind of like this text. It's, it involves listening to God. It involves taking hold of what God says and living like it's actually true. It involves moving into things that sometimes feel scary and feel like, I don't understand how this is going to work, but supposedly this is what God says, so I'm going to abide and I'm going to be there. Jesus says in John chapter 15, abide in me. And then he gives this picture like a branch that must be vitally connected to the vine if it's going to have any life or fruitfulness. Abide in me. He says, abide in my love. Know the love that I have for you, that I've given myself for you. He says, abide in me and let my my words abide in you and you will bear much fruit. You will keep my commands as you abide in me. Abide in me, he says, for apart from me you can do nothing. Think about that for a minute. Do we live like that's true? In a few minutes, we're, you know, we're going to come to this table, and one of the lines that we're going to sing as we're coming is, From me does not but evil flow, I can't escape the curse. Do you believe that? Or do you and I tend to live often like with my own resources, with my own smarts, with my own abilities, with my own talents, with what I have in me, I can fix this. I can make this work. The three ways that I think we're meant to respond to Deuteronomy 1 that I just mentioned, these three ways I think also help us to abide, right? Deep praise. I want to be near Jesus. He is good. He is gracious. I want to be connected to him. Deep repentance. I want to be near Jesus. I want to be turning to him constantly. 
because I realize in me is an insanity that I have to have constantly being helped by Jesus and grace from Jesus. And the closer I am to him, the better. Deep longing. I want to be near Jesus, abiding in him, knowing the love of the Father, knowing the power of the Spirit, so that I can really grow and change. This week, uh, I was chatting with a friend of mine, a friend from seminary, and we were discussing ministry and we were discussing life and struggles and all that sort of thing. And a theme that we kept kind of circling back to was this theme of abiding. And we kind of, I forget who said it, but we kind of both were kind of riffing on this idea of we don't get to the place where we are really patient and where we don't just turn to comfort or numbing ourselves or we don't just turn to our own resources. We don't just automatically do that. Like, it's when we're abiding in Jesus and we're listening to him and we're holding on to what he's saying and, and, and we're, we're obeying what he's saying. That, it's in that space that God is really starting to change us. And this morning, I would say to all of us that if we will receive this story as our story, it will lead us to the intended goal that we would draw near and abide in the one who could really help us, that we would abide in the one who is good and gracious, who is our life and our joy, and who calls us to listen to what he says and to do what he says because he loves us.